You know, there are so many questions that are out there that what we would call frequently asked questions, commonly asked questions. And in a typical time that we have, we don't have time to answer all of those things. For the most part, you get 20 questions. It doesn't matter where you go on, in around the world. I get the same questions. Do aliens exist? Things like that. But there are some others that, that are, are fairly common, but you don't see them as often. And so we've put together a, a few commonly asked questions that we want to give you answers for. Maybe you've never even thought of these questions before, but a critic might bring them up to you as well. And uh, once we bring them up, you might say, oh, I, I've never thought of that, but now I wonder why that is. One of these questions is, if there was no death before sin, then why did God create a spider with a spider web? Or a snake to be able to bite, or any of these kinds of things? Well, there's a number of animals we could look at, but I want you to know that there are explanations for every single one of them. Why would a lion eat meat? Do you know that we have lions that actually have been vegetarian? Yeah, there's a vegetarian lion out there. But that's not the norm. Certain things changed after the fall. There's no question about that. Research has discovered that the orb spider also eats pollen caught in their webs. But since it lacks a key amino acid, they can't survive on it indefinitely. But nonetheless, it is possible that before the fall, spiders could have just eaten pollen on their, on their webs. Now there is a second possible explanation on that. And that is this. We know that insects, technically, according to the biblical Hebrew word that's given to them, may not technically be living things. A plant could die because technically, in God's eyes, it's not a living creature. Possibly, insects could fall under that same category because they do not have what is called nephesh kaya in Scripture. They don't have the same blood type of thing that you know warm-blooded animals or humans have. And so it's possible that insects could die, but... I tend to think that they have been changed in some way and that maybe they did just eat pollen and those type of things before. Here we see a picture of a mosquito. And you can see the the needle-like thing that they have for their mouth that goes into your skin. It is possible as well that these mosquitoes could have penetrated plant tissue. The malaria parasite used to get its nutrients from the sun, it seems, that it is quite possible anyway, uh, just like plants do but somehow they've lost it. There are similar structures in the parasite to the plastids of algae that allow it to get energy from the sun. So if if algae could do it because it's got this certain thing that allows photosynthesis to take place, and we see the same thing in malaria, it could be that it just slightly got changed, but that these bacteria and whatnot, these parasites, would not need a human host or an animal host, but that they could have gotten it from plants before. So these are all things that are quite possible, that maybe mosquitoes, likewise, would not have needed to you know, get blood, but that they would have been able to get these things from plants and use that to penetrate the plant tissue. We don't know, but nonetheless, we know that the world has changed since the time of the curse. Therefore, if the world has changed... These animals could have changed, and simply by just slightly adjusting the genetics, things like that could take place. Another question, why are so many names recorded in the Scripture? Now, this is one that people don't normally even think about outside of when they're reading the Bible and they get bored with it. Well, guys, these genealogies are very important because it shows, uh, well, more than one thing. First of all, it shows us that Jesus had to be the Messiah. 
Do you know that the Messiah had to be from the son of David? So in order for you to prove today that the Messiah was the Messiah that the Bible is speaking of, you'd have to be able to prove genealogically that it, you know, he has the blood of David in him. Well, after 70 AD, many of the records of the Jewish people have been destroyed. It would be almost impossible today to prove that you are a descendant of David. I believe even with the DNA, it would be very difficult to do such a thing. But those genealogies were there to trace us to Christ. So I think ultimately that's the number one reason why these names are there. But there's another reason. It also helps us date the earth. It tells us how old the earth is. So we see in Genesis 5, in verses 3 through 32, that when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. And then it goes on and it says, after Seth had lived 105 he became the father of Enosh. When Enosh had lived 90, he became the father of Kenan, and so on and so on. It gives us these names. All we have to do is add up the time period it takes us to the flood. We see it took place 1,656 years after creation. Now then, after the flood, those genealogies continue. We do the same thing, and it will take us up to what we know of history, when the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. took place. So, all we do is we have these genealogies taking us up to current history that we know, and we have an age of the earth that's about 6,000 years old. So the age of the earth is given by these genealogies. Now, some might say, well, but wait a minute, there are gaps in genealogies. Now, it is true that Abba, father, can sometimes mean grandfather, but... When it's supposed to mean father or grandfather, you can tell through the Hebrew language. If the, that et before Abba is there, we know what it's supposed to mean. And so the cases where there could be gaps possibly, we know when it's not supposed to be. So I personally do not believe there are gaps in the genealogies. You know, not all of them. We can tell how the age of the earth is just from that alone. And there are symbolic reasons why I believe that in, in our DVD on commonly asked questions and answers, part one, ultimately, we give an explanation of those patterns. So I won't get into that part here now. But if there were gaps in genealogies, at best, it would only allow the earth to be about ten to 15,000 years old. So that's a far cry from millions of years. But nonetheless, those ages, the age of the earth is given. But again, I don't even think that's the most important reason. I think it's because of the genealogies showing us Jesus was the Messiah. That's why they're there. But there could also be a third reason. Some prophetic reasons those names are there. There was a man named Methuselah before the flood. And his name means his death shall bring forth. You know, names meant something back then. Yeshua means the Lord saves. Jesus, the Lord saves is what Yeshua means. Now, God told us his name was beyond understanding in Judges chapter 13, verse 18. This means that the name has meaning. We, we, we just can't understand the full glory of its meaning. Today, we name our kids because, well, we, we like the way it sounds. But back then, those names were given for a reason. And we've lost that today. And that's sad. But a lot of them, I think, could be for prophetic reasons. Methuselah... Like I said, his name means his death shall bring forth. Do you know that the genealogies show us that Methuselah died the very year of Noah's flood? That tells us one of two things. Either Methuselah died in Noah's flood, or his death was a marker for the flood. 
And his name almost prophetically indicates that. His death shall bring forth. Bring forth what? Perhaps Noah's flood. Well, anyway, these names, as I said, have meaning. Those names are given in the Scripture and in Hebrew understanding in some cases. What does Adam mean? Man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring forth. We see Lamech despairing. Noah means rest. So do you know that these are the names in their order there in Genesis 5? If you just kind of make a story, a, a sentence, a paragraph out of those, it would read like this. So man is appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. It's the gospel message right there, even in the names. So perhaps that's why it's there. And you can do the same thing with the 12 tribes of Israel even. The 12 tribes of Israel, we see these listed in Genesis 29 through 35. And the Bible tells us their names. You've got the verses listed here. You could go back and look at them in more detail if you'd like. In Genesis 29, 32, it tells us that Reuben means because the Lord has seen my misery. In verse 33, Simeon, the Lord has heard. In verse 34, attached or joined. Judah is, this time I will praise. Dan, God has vindicated. Naphtali had a struggle and won. Gad, good fortune. Asher, how happy am I? Issachar, God has rewarded me. Zebulun, to be exalted or honored. Joseph, may the Lord add another. And Benjamin, the son of my right hand. If you just make a sentence out of this again, this is what it says. I'll maybe put a because in there or an and, but just basically the, the meaning right there. This is it. Because the Lord has seen my misery, he has heard and joined or attached himself to us. This caused Israel to praise God who vindicated them. They had been in great struggle but won and now had good fortune causing them to be happy. God rewarded his chosen people with the promised land, exalted them above all nations, so that he may add another blessing, the son of his right hand, which would be Yeshua the Messiah. Now, another interesting aspect here in Revelation, we see those 12 tribes listed again, but it's a different order. Why? Well, there's a post-cross message there. You can see here the differences. Manasseh and Joseph are added there. Now, if you would make this a sentence, I'm not going to go through all the names. You can see them listed. It would say this. He has seen the affliction of his people. God looked down and granted them good fortune as he always took care of them so that they could you know, be happy and chosen nation. However, they wrestled with God and they turned their backs on him. The wrestling, however, will bring them to repentance and cause them to return to the Lord, just as Romans tells us will happen in, in chapter 11, verse 25. They will forget their sorrows as God hears their prayers once more when he has joined the Gentiles to the covenant tree, though purchasing and rewarding those who by faith believe on his name. God has exalted us all by seating us with him in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians 1.20 tells us. And this was all done by adding to us the one who is seated at the right hand of God, Yeshua, Jesus.
Isn't that something? There could be, there's so, so much deep information in there. Maybe we shouldn't skip over those names so easily. But really look at the, ne- the meaning of those names. It tells us in Proverbs 22.1 that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Our character is important. A good name is extremely important. We're here representing Jesus Christ and we bear His name. We need to, to live holy lives worthy of the calling that God has given us. Because people are watching us. In Revelation it says this in chapter 2 verse 17. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to him who receives it. You see when we get to heaven we get a new name. One that I guarantee is going to have meaning. Not one that your parents gave you because they thought it sounded nice. We will get a new name. So... I think names are important, and next time maybe you name your child, you might want to think about that a little bit. Another question. Did Darwin recant? A lot of people say, well, didn't Darwin on his deathbed change his mind? And the answer to that is no. Actually, what happened is uh, we know his history quite well because he recorded many things in his diaries. We have those diaries, so you know all we have to do is go look what he was thinking because it's written down. His wife, Emma, actually wrote a letter urging him to take to heart John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, we know that he carried that letter with him for a long time. He even jotted a lot of notes down on it. But all of his writings indicate that if he did take it to heart, he didn't believe it. You see, Darwin, during his days, he believed, and really society did, that the species were fixed. You know, that this kind of dog was the kind of dog that was created. If he was a poodle, it was the poodle that was created by God. Well, when he went over to the Galapagos Islands and he saw these different kinds of finches, just like today we see different kinds of dogs, that kind of threw a wrench in his beliefs. And so society was kind of already prepped to believe in evolution. What they didn't realize is that species aren't fixed. We're continually making new species of dogs by crossing dogs, among many other kinds of animals. And so that's where a lot of his confusion came about. But his parents were first cousins. Emma, his wife, was actually his first cousin. And because of incest, his family and he himself were very unhealthy. These health problems caused him to be angry at God. As a matter of fact, Anne, his daughter, died when she was 10 years old because of some of these same stomach problems that Darwin suffered from himself for 12 years. And when he got angry at God, why all this death, disease, and suffering? It was hard for him to to see past that, to see John 3.16 clearly. And so... We know that he was bitter towards God. He wrote a note to his family that was apparently intended to be read after his death, saying this, I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the test seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. 
See, he didn't understand why there had to be death, disease, suffering, punishment. Now, we've covered that on other presentations, but in a nutshell, guys, if Adam and Eve fell into sin and caused death, disease, and suffering, he would have had an answer. But since he was doubting the Bible, he couldn't understand the death, disease, and suffering, like many people in our society today can't. Like I said, I talk more about that on creation philosophy for evangelism. But this bitterness took root in his heart. It wasn't until 1838, after he wrote The Voyage of the Beagle, that he read an essay on the principles of population by Reverend Thomas Malthus who said that the earthly misery was actually due to humans reproducing faster than the food supply could reproduce. So Malthus's solution was to get rid of welfare and let the poor people starve to death. Well, Darwin took this to heart, and he extended it to the animal and plant kingdoms. And that's kind of where evolution, his idea of evolution was coming about, survival of the fittest. Darwin wrote this, Yearly more are bred than can survive. The smallest grain in the balance, in the long run, must tell on which death shall fall and which shall survive. Let this work of selection, on the one hand, and death on the other, go on for a thousand generations. Who would pretend to affirm that it would produce no effect? You can see how he was influenced by these ungodly principles that were out there. In essence, the reason Darwin was so popular was because he lived at a time when the world had compromised on the Word of God. Many in the church were just basically beginning to believe in an old earth because of what was being taught out there in society. One big thing was Lyell's book, Principles of Geology. And he was challenging the age of the earth, saying the earth was older than what the Bible said. And because people were challenging these authorities... And, and not believing the Bible, it opened up a whole philosophy for Darwin to think in other directions and not have a biblical mindset, which explains why he came to wrong conclusions. You know, why they thought speciation was fixed, when in fact the Bible says things are supposed to reproduce after their kind. But despite urban legend, Darwin never did recant on his deathbed. He did read his Bible, but it wasn't with the intent of seeking God. It was rather to compare the opposing philosophies of his day. And like I said, he recorded so much in his diary that we, we know what he was thinking and believing. He did say something on his deathbed, but the fact is, when he died, it was in another language. The nurse couldn't understand what he was saying, and as a result, we don't know what he said. But there's no evidence, according to his diaries, that he did repent. Actually, the opposite. He just became more angry and bitter at God. In 2009, there was over 850 special events to celebrate and idolize Darwin during his 150th anniversary of Darwin's Origin of Species. Well, 1959, way back then, they had the 100th anniversary. At that time, the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study was formed. And their purpose was to spread evolution in the schools using textbooks. At that time, evolution was usually just a chapter or parts of a chapter in a textbook. But by 1975, after they met here, this BSCS got together, almost half of all high schools used BSCS textbooks. And many other publishers were basically influenced by them and and taking suit and following them. 2009... The same thing happened again. They met together and they decided that they needed to get more evolution in our textbooks. 
and at younger grades. And since 2009, you cannot believe how much more evolution has been taught in our schools in the kindergarten levels. Don't think that if there was that much of an increase in evolution from 1959 to 1975, that there isn't going to be a huge jump again since 2009 to celebrate Darwin and the lie of evolution. So this is a serious issue. He has not recanted, and people aren't recanting of evolution today. It is even getting worse in our public schools. So you need to watch for that, because they're hitting them at younger ages. How about this one? Has synthetic life been created? This was on the news here uh, not too long ago, and every now and then you kind of hear little bits and pieces about it. The answer is no. Synthetic life has not been created in a laboratory. This would be very similar to the old Miller-Urey experiment in which they made amino acids in the lab. The problem is what they don't tell you is they cheated by putting ingredients in the experiment that they knew were supposed to be there, leaving out ingredients that they knew couldn't be in there but believe should have been in the early atmosphere they also in this experiment did not allow its original material to get back to its own environment because you need heat to create it but heat would kill it so it was a catch-22 they also don't tell you they created the wrong kind of amino acids for life nothing new was created when they say that they created synthetic life in a lab Actually, what happened is they just moved the same information around. They plagiarized and copied God's design. It would be like copying a software program, ultimately. But the hardware was still the same. Taking a software program from one computer, putting it onto another computer. It still doesn't explain where the computer came from, does it? No. Fox News said this, The inventors call it the world's first synthetic cell, although this initial step is more a recreation of existing life, changing one simple type of bacterium into another, than a built-from-scratch kind. Glenn McGee of the Center for Practical Bioethics in Kansas City, Missouri, said this, To claim the creation of synthetic life, the entire organism must be successfully produced from raw materials. The landmark achievement has yet to occur. What they've done is they've successfully transplanted DNA from one thing to another without noticeably harming the operation of the old DNA. As best they understand it, from their definition of its function, when I put it that way, it's a lot less significant. Or here, Steve Jones, another anti-creationist, he's even said, the idea that this is playing God is just daft. What he has done in genetic terms would be analogous to taking an Apple Mac program, making it work on a PC, and then saying you've created a computer. It's not trivial, but it's utterly absurd, the claims that are being made about it. So have they made life in a laboratory? Still no, but they make all these big claims because they want you to think that life could evolve. You know what the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 17? It says it's God himself who gives all men life and breath, and everything else. This experiment simply shows how complex and amazing God's creation really is. Do you know it took them 15 years to copy what God did in this little tiny area of DNA? A single letter mistake was made out of a million-lettered code DNA, and it caused a three-month delay. This is how precise and amazing and accurate God's creation is. Yet they want us to think that this code of millions of ordered things 
could happen by chance without having any mistakes. One mistake caused that much of a delay, and yet our DNA reproduces in minutes. And yet, no mistakes. There's a built-in thing to, to check for mistakes. I mean, they always say, but if enough time happened, it could happen. We could get life to form if enough time. No, guys, time is the enemy of evolution. As a matter of fact, if you imagine cutting up a picture of our president, okay, thousands of tiny little squares. Now what I want you to do is mix those squares up in a baggie, go stand on top of a building and dump that baggie out. The things that, you know, lay out on the bottom of the ground there, do you think that's going to be a picture of the president again? It's not a chance. Well, maybe you just need more time, right? Why don't you go up to the Empire State Building and do it? What's going to happen? Is, are you going to get closer to a picture of the president? No. It will be more disordered. The more time, the more the second law of thermodynamics affects it. More disorder, more entropy. You can take it 3,000 feet up in a, a helicopter and drop it. And guess what? It's even more disorder. The more time, the more increase in entropy. Psalm 139 tells us this, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You want to know where life came from? The Bible tells us so clearly. Why do we keep looking for other answers? It's a waste of time, isn't it? Yeah. I was just at NASA here uh, speaking in Houston not long ago, and it was crazy. We go there, and they're telling us that, they're telling my kids that we need to inhabit Mars because we're running out of resources on Earth, and it won't be long, and we won't be able to live on Earth anymore. We need other planets to inhabit. And so they're out there trying to find life on Mars and places where life could exist when the Bible says, no, I created Earth for life. Only earth has the capabilities for life to be here. Why are there more Caucasians in the north and more black people living in the south? Is that evolution? No, but there is a natural selection explanation. You see, we believe in natural selection as creationists. Uh, Actually, it was a creationist that came up with this idea. His name was Edward Blythe. Darwin simply took it and used it for his theory of evolution. You know, many think we gradually adapted to the intense ultraviolet light near the equator. Now, this theory is neither logical nor scientific. But we still have to ask, then, well, why then are there more black people in the South? It's simple. We have something called melanin. It's a skin pigment in our skin. The more we have, the darker we are. And it is this skin pigment that is responsible for the diversity that we have in the colors of skin. Again, the more, the darker. The less, the lighter. That's all it is. The natural reason black people flourish better in warmer climates is a biblical one. Sunlight is needed for vitamin D. But too much vitamin D damages the skin and reduces folic acid, which is needed for reproduction. Now, on the flip side, though, darker skin protects you from the sunlight and therefore their folic acid is going to be untouched and reproduction would still continue to be successful. However, vitamin D 
when it's lacking, is going to cause problems as well. They won't get very much of it in the South because the black people don't have enough skin. It doesn't take it in very well. But if they gets really hot, they shed more clothing, they have more skin exposed, and they then can take in more vitamin D. And this is then why darker-skinned people would become a majority near the equator by natural selection, in a sense. You see, they can safely be in the sun without harm while at the same time getting enough vitamin D for their bodies. But a Caucasian, on the other hand, living way down in the south in these hot areas is going to naturally over centuries become more of a minority because they are going to take off their clothing more so and they're going to get too much sunlight, too much UV rays. They're going to get their vitamin D, but in addition, too much of the UV radiation. This would destroy their folic acid. That's why today's sunscreen and vitamin D pills help us keep this balance unnaturally black people who live in the north vitamin d is vital for them because they typically don't get enough of it over here in the northern parts of the world so it just would naturally work out now on the flip side light-skinned individuals who would be living in cold areas are going to keep their skin covered protected from the folic acid loss but they're going to also get enough vitamin d through a small amount of exposed skin Therefore, dark-skinned people in cooler climates being covered up don't get enough vitamin D, lowering their fertility, causing rickets, and a need for them to take vitamins. Unnaturally takes care of this problem. Now, rickets, by the way, has also been found in almost every Neanderthal bone that we have ever discovered. And uh, it may suggest that they were of the darker skin, that they didn't get enough vitamin D. I'm not saying they were black, I'm just saying darker skin so that they couldn't get as much vitamin D from the sun. Uh, rickets is also caused from cold, damp climates, which might explain why they were hunched over and beetle-browed as well. Now, the Tower of Babel, people were scattered. They were building a tower under the heavens to worship the heavens. And so God confused their languages and they spread out throughout different parts of the world, isolating their gene pools. And when you isolate these gene pools, certain physical traits become dominant. And that's where the so-called races would come from. We talk more about that in my Dinosaurs Ice Age pre-flood world if you want to know more about that. Next question. Does not bacteria becoming resistant to penicillin prove evolution to be true? Not at all. Many bacteria become resistant by acquiring genes from plasmids or transposons through horizontal gene transfer. And now this does account for their spread, but it doesn't explain their origin. Mutations involve processes opposite of evolution because mutations are going to reduce information or eliminate it, not add new information into it. And that's what evolutionists need for beneficial bacteria mutations. We don't really see that happening. Beneficial would be increasing the complexity of a creature by adding new genetic information into it. That's not what's happening when bacteria become resistant to penicillin. In fact, it is the opposite. It is the loss of information. Let me explain to you how this works. We have this uh, bacteria called H. pylori. It's the one that gives you stomach ulcers. Now, if you get a stomach ulcer, they would give you penicillin, some kind of antibiotic. 
Now normally, as you can see here, the antibiotic would be absorbed through the cell wall of the bacteria. The bacteria already had in its DNA an enzyme. The enzyme would meet the antibiotic, the two meet together, it forms a poison, that poison then kills the bacteria. Well, what happened was there was a mutation, not a good one, a loss of information. So now that bacteria could take the antibiotic in through its cell wall, but there was no enzyme to meet the penicillin. No enzyme, no poison. So these guys survive, and you have a resistant strain of bacteria as they reproduce, not being able to pass on information that they've lost. That's all it is. It's a loss of information. As a matter of fact, these superbugs that seem to be resistant to our antibiotics, and they say, oh, that's evolution. No, it isn't. It's a loss of information, and they've been around a long time. Do you know that bacteria from the intestines of the explorers that were frozen have been found? They reveal resistant strains that were already in their bodies. The genes that produced resistance were already there. No new information has been added. The oldest bacteria has been revived from the the Franklin expedition about 150 years ago. Three of the six strains were resistant. Here's a picture right there of John Torrington of the Franklin. So these super germs, in reality, in many cases, are actually super wimps. You may say, well, it's a beneficial mutation because, look, it's benefiting that bacteria. Well, not really. You see, as long as that bacteria is in its unnatural world of our sterile, clean hospitals, yes, it's at a benefit. But if it's in its own environment where other bacteria are around, those other bacteria will bully up on it. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is if you get one of these resistant strains that no antibiotic will take care of, go play in the dirt Play with some kindergarten kids for a bit. Get introduced to other bacteria because they will take care of it when our antibiotics can't. So these super germs are really actually super wimps. As a matter of fact, one of these bacteria often appears after many antibiotics are taken. Uh, It's found that patients without an appendix were four times more likely to get this deadly pathogen. 48% of cases versus 11%. So the appendix, which has been long viewed as an extra vestigial organ, an evolutionary leftover, they have shown that you get rid of your appendix, it increases your chances of not only you know, deadly pathogens like this, but it increases your chances of leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the colon, cancer of the ovaries. Yeah, and they would take those things out because, ah, it's just evolution. No, there's no such thing as an evolutionary leftover. God made these things, put them in your body for a reason. So there is no such thing as really a beneficial, true beneficial mutation where new information has been added to increase its complexity. Some have tried to say oranges, seedless oranges, that's a beneficial mutation. No, it's not. Not for the orange, it might be for you, but that'd be like you being born sterile. You can't reproduce. Or sickle cell anemia, that's a good beneficial mutation. You get malaria, you won't get sickle cell anemia. Well, you cut your legs off, you don't get athlete's foot. 
No, it's not the same thing. That's the better of two evils. That's not a good thing. So no beneficial mutations. Increasing complexity. Adding new information in. Has life been found on other planets? Well, I'm not going to give you a very long explanation on this one because we have a DVD called Do Aliens Exist? that will really get into that. The quick answer is absolutely not. Life has not been found on other planets and there are not aliens, at least not the way you're thinking of them. However, here's what I find fascinating. Do you know if a single cell, a living cell, was found on a distant planet? Scientists would clearly say that, hey, we found life elsewhere in the universe, wouldn't they? But... If you see a single living cell in the womb of a woman, it's not considered life? How illogical is that, right? So, no, the only place that we have found life is planet Earth. And there's a reason, because God has placed it here. Why are there living fossils? This is a very important question to ask. Today we have our taxonomy, listing things and classifying them according to man-made orders. You take 150 objects, you arrange them in an evolutionary order based upon maybe size or shape, maybe simple to complex. Every person doing this, though, is going to give a different result, a different relationship, because it's in the eye of the beholder, and they're going to be biased towards different things. And that's basically the taxonomy that we have with animals today, to put them in our different species and uh, in phylums and so on. There's a great book out there called Living Fossils here by Carl Werner. And he shows in there that we have found fossils of every major invertebrate animal phylum. Shellfish and and, and echinoderms have been found with dinosaurs. Insects, crustaceans, starfish, crinoids, corals, sponges, worms, fish, amphibians, birds, frogs, and mammals. Found with dinosaurs, guys. Now, if evolution is true, that should not happen. It even gets worse for an evolutionist. Do you know that even modern birds have been found? With dinosaurs, parrots, owls, penguins, ducks, loons, albatrosses, sandpipers, all with dinosaurs, even 432 mammal species have been found with dinosaurs. Nearly 100 complete mammal skeletons. Yet, we don't find these in any museum across the country, do we? They don't show you birds and mammals with dinosaurs because evolution says that dinosaurs were first... And then we get the the mammals and the birds, right? So why don't they show you what we really find in the fossil record in our museums? Because it doesn't fit the theory of evolution. I want to show you how they have set up a human man-made system that is so broken and they have to do just illogical things to keep believing in evolution. Look at this here. Here's a dog. Now everything gets a species name, a genus name, right? Here we have a dog as Canis familiarius. Here are two dogs, Canis familiarius. We've got the modern dog right here. Now look at the different shapes of their skulls. Completely different, aren't they? They're a different species, but they've got the same genus name here. But they are vastly different skulls. Yet, in the fossil record, we can find bones that are almost identical, and they will give them a different genus and species name. They'll be identical. Look, right here, we can have the same genus, and they look vastly different. But if they weren't alive today, do you think they'd put them in the same genus in the fossil record? 
Not a chance. As a matter of fact, look at this. Here's an alligator skull. The one here on the right is a modern alligator. You see the genus and the species here for this modern alligator. Now, on the left is a fossilized alligator skull. It looks identical. The only thing missing is that little nose bone that probably broke off because it's such a fine, fragile bone. The only thing that's missing right there. But yet, in today's taxonomy, they have given this a completely different genus and species name. Why? Because this thing is supposed to be millions of years old, and therefore it had to have evolved. It can't be the same genus and species. It looks identical. Here's a modern goblin shark compared to one that's been found in the fossil record. They gave it a separate genus and species name, even though it looks identical. Here we have the coelacanth fish. Alive today, the one on top, the one on the bottom in the fossil record, it looks identical to the same ones that are alive, but they give it a different genus and species name. That doesn't make any sense, does it? We have fossil sea urchins here, identical to the modern purple heart, the sea urchin found here. Now, the fossil was given a different name, suggesting that they've changed over time. However, it doesn't look like it's changed to me. This is just contrived evidence for evolution. Here is a shrimp. Compared to the one we find in the fossil record, they gave it a different genus and species name. We can go on and on, whether it be to crickets, to dragonflies, to other fish that they change just the color of them in our museums to make them look like it's something different. This isn't good science. This is exactly what the Bible says, is that what God created that was destroyed in the fossil record, unless they've gone extinct, they should be alive today and look pretty much the same. And that's exactly what the fossil record shows. But they contrive this evidence, making it look like the fossil record has all these different genus and species thing, but they're the same thing that we have alive today. I really recommend that book, Living Fossils. It is fantastic. How about psychology? Is psychology a good thing? Is that biblical? I'll tell you guys, I think psychology is a very dangerous thing. Now, I'm not going to get too much into this. I do have a newsletter on our website that will go into more detail. But the bottom line is this. is You know, in 1968, there were only 182 psychological disorders. In 1980, there was 265 of them. By 1987, 292 different disorders. And today, there's over 374 mental disorders listed in this book, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We keep adding all these mental disorders. What's going on? Are we just you know, finding more of them? No. What we're doing is we're just labeling everybody. Every time somebody has something wrong with them, called a sin, we give it a, a mental disorder. Here we see the number 313.81, oppositional defiant disorder. And what is it? It's hostile behavior towards authority figures. Could we maybe just call that disobeying your parents? In the Old Testament, they just stone you for it. But now we just give you a label and say, well, you can't help it. It's just what you've got. No, it's sin. Here are some of the, the symptoms. Losing one's temper, arguing with adults, annoying other people, blaming others. Guys, this isn't a mental disorder. It's called sin. And if we treat it as such, repent of it, and take it to the Lord, I'll bet He'd be able to take care of it for you. There's the narcissistic personality disorder. I call that selfishness. 
That's what it is. It's being selfish. Non-compliance with treatment disorder. They've even got one that if you, you, you don't really like psychology, <laughs> you don't want the cure. It's a disorder. I call it pride. 300.9, unspecified mental disorder. This is just in case they can't find a, t- a term to put it on it. We'll, we'll, we'll attach that label to it. Now, guys, I'm not saying that there aren't some disorders that are out there. There's no question there are. But it has been so abused and overused and, and just basically overlooking sin that when we label people with these things, we expect them to behave that way. And if you believe you are, that's the way you're going to behave. You believe you're a terrible sinner, you're going to act like one. You believe you're a saint, chances are you'll act like one. You believe that you've got a mental disorder? Chances are you'll live it out. There's even a religious or spiritual problem. You have a disorder. If you are questioning faith, maybe possibly converting to a new faith, or questioning spiritual values, you could have a mental disorder. Well, if you go on our website, you will see that, do you know that the fathers of psychology were Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud? Do you know that both of those men went insane? That ought to tell you something. Carl Jung used to call his dead grandfather out of a picture on the wall and go take strolls in the garden and talk to his dead grandfather. And he even wrote the Tibetan books of the dead by getting information from his grandfather, calling these spirits out. Sigmund Freud even accused Jung of trying to kill him once because Freud didn't initially believe in life after death. He had like a big shotgun noise kind of thing come out of a bookshelf and Freud fainted and Freud accused Carl Jung of of trying to kill him. Both these men ended up talking to the dead. Both these men went insane. I think psychology is a very dangerous business. Again, I think that there's one counselor and that is the Holy Spirit. That's to be our counselor, the Word of God. I'm not saying that there aren't Christian counselors that can help. But if they're doing it outside of the Bible... I don't think there's a cure. The cure is only going to be found in Jesus. And I'm sure I offended some of you with that. But the bottom line is, is check it out. Check out the roots of psychology. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't some aspects of truth. That's how Satan works. He takes some truth, but then he likes to twist it and make it into a mess. So be careful with psychology. Well, is the sun a star? You know, they tell you that blue stars are the new ones. They're the ones that replace those that have burned out in what do we call supernovas. Have you ever looked at the Big Dipper at night and thought, whoa, a new star? No, because we don't see stars forming today. They see a ball of gas that they believe is going to be a star. Well, that's different than seeing a star form. You know, do you see a star forming? Yeah, right there. I see a ball of gas. Yeah, that's a star forming. No, that's you believing you're seeing a star forming. We're not seeing stars form today you know the star formation has a huge huge problem it goes against science yeah what they say is that the gases and the dust and all these things start gravitationally pulling together initially just you know a couple of pieces of dust maybe come together but they keep going together and together and more and more and more well gas hydrogen and things like that that are in stars they resist compression They always fill empty space. That's the opposite of how stars are... They're they're saying stars form through a process that is scientifically impossible. 
unobservable. The exact opposite is observed, as a matter of fact. So they'll default by saying, well, explosions could cause these gases to get compressed together. Verifiable observational experiments today shows explosions don't do that. The gases expand even more. Clouds of gas always have a weak magnetic field, but compression increases the field strength. So this would cause further expansion. It's kind of like polar opposites in in magnetism. And gas clouds have small amounts of angular momentum as they rotate. So a collapsing cloud would spin like a skater pulling its arms in, causing the centrifugal force to prevent collapse. The opposite of what you need for a star to form. So first of all, do we see stars forming? The answer is no. Second of all, just look at these pictures. These are really pretty amazing. You know, here's Earth compared to Venus, Mars, Mercury, and Pluto. You can kind of see their scale here for size. Look at them compared to the sun. 1,306,000 Earths could fit inside that sun. That sun, though, look how small it is compared to the star Sirius or Pollux or Arcturus. It's tiny. The Earth at this scale is invisible. Jupiter is just about the size of one pixel here. You just can't even see it. But even Arcturus here is tiny compared to these other stars like Betelgeuse and others. They're huge. In 190 to 120 BC, we see Greek astronomers and mathematicians said that there were exactly 1,026 stars. Ptolemy in AD 85 to 165 said there were about 1,056. And then we had Kepler, the German astronomer, in the 1500s counting about 1,006. So we see that those were the ones that were visible to the eye. But when Galileo came, who was, by the way, a devout Christian, he, through telescopes, looking at the heavens in 1608, discovered that these counts were off astronomically. That the Bible was actually right, and that the stars were uncountable. Carl Sagan, in the 1930s to 90s, he was a a world-famous evolutionary astronomer, said this, The total number of stars in the universe is greater than all the grains of sand on all the beaches of Earth. There are more stars that it would take you 24 hours a day, seven days a week counting them, and you couldn't even count them in your lifetime. There's that many. Look what Jeremiah tells us in chapter 33, verse 22. The host of heaven, which are like the stars, cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured. That's how many stars there are. And those stars, we have a DVD called The Stars, God's Word in the Sky. That'll give you a further understanding of why God put them there and why such great space. It's not an accident that they're placed where they are. Not at all. Here's a picture from space, Earth at night. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Here's the sunrise. Earth has over 500 million square kilometers of surface, 6,000 quadrillion tons of rocks, 1,000 trillion tons of water. And here we are. Here's planet Earth. Look how insignificant that looks. This is a picture taken from Cassini probe in 2004 from Saturn. This is, you can kind of see the rings of Saturn there. That's how small we are. This just gives you a little bit of an idea of the vastness of our universe. 
And they want to tell you that the sun is just a happy accident that's just significantly placed by accident where it is so that we don't burn up. But they're telling you that's a star. Why? Because then if that's a star, then other stars are what? Suns. And if those stars are suns, then all you have to do is find a planet that's close enough to one of those suns and you could have life there. Not a chance. Do you know, guys, that if you would take every inch representing a million miles, one inch, a million miles, that if the, uh, I don't know, the, the wall behind me, the screen behind me, 93 inches away from it, if that screen is the sun, Earth would be 93 inches from it. Saturn would be somewhere around here. Pluto, about 100 yards that direction. 100 yards, that's it. But every inch being a million miles. Do you know the closest star, the closest one, would be 450 miles in that direction? Now, if we don't know anything about Pluto, that's only 100 yards away, what are you going to know about something 450 miles away? We can't even decide if Pluto is a planet or not, and you're trying to tell me that what those so-called suns are? No, those are stars that God created for a purpose. We're not seeing stars forming today. The sun is not a star. The sun was created, the Bible says it's not a, a star. Oh, I believe it has similar gases. We see spectroscopes and things like that that will tell us similar gases. But they're created for completely different purposes. The Bible tells us that God created the sun, the moon, and stars for signs, times, and seasons. The sun was the greater light to rule the day, the moon the lesser light to rule the night. It even says in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us in comparing different forms of flesh with animals and and humans, And it goes on and it says even the stars are different from the sun and stars are different from star in glory. You might say, well, that's just talking about brightness, but that doesn't seem to be the context of everything else is being discussed there. The sun is not a star. In Genesis, as he says, he also made the stars. So, no, the sun is not a star. Well, have they found the God particle that we keep hearing about in this Higgs boson? experiment where they're trying to recreate the Big Bang? Well, not at all. They have not found a God particle. As a matter of fact, do you know that many, uh, even the evolutionists are upset that they call it the God particle because they don't want God to have anything to do with this. But it's a very problematic thing. Now, I don't want to say that this was, you know, nothing. Uh, It was an impressive experiment. There's no question about it. But uh, to keep it simple, they found a shadow of a shadow of something. Yes, they showed particles have mass. We knew that due to interaction with what's called the Higgs field. Now, evolution says gravitational pull between particles is what caused these stars and galaxies to form, but the Higgs boson didn't prove that at all. Like I said, they were able to prove this field exists and see how particles interact with it, but it did nothing to show how the Big Bang could come about. Not at all. And so, uh, don't worry about that. There's no God particle. They didn't create matter. They didn't create the Big Bang. They didn't even see how it could happen. It didn't give us any of that information. 
Now, I could have told them that that wasn't going to be found as well because the Bible gives us the answer. So anyway, as you can see, there is no need for us to get worried about these questions that are posed out there in these media news, uh, you know, real titles that come across our screen sometimes that synthetic life has been formed. Now, don't get excited about it. You need to find out what's behind it. You know, in all our years, all of our science, not one piece of science has contradicted the Bible yet. So I think we're pretty safe. These evolutionists who have an anti-God philosophy are continuing to try to, to put an end to Christianity. That's their goal. That's their mindset. That's the philosophy. No wonder we see these kind of things coming across the media. Don't be afraid by it. Don't be scared by it. Be proud that you're a Christian. Here's another question we have to ask. Why is there only liquid water on earth? Well, water has some very unique qualities. First of all, it it has refraction. It, It causes light to bend differently. You stick a stick in water, it looks like it bends. Because as you look through water... It changes things, doesn't it? Likewise, Jesus, the living water, as we look through the Word of God, it changes our perspective of this world. It also has some unique freezing capabilities. When water freezes, it's very different because it expands. That's the opposite of everything else. When it gets cold, it shrinks, but not water. Why? Well, because water, if it would shrink... When it got cold, it would sink to the bottom of the lakes in the winter. Then the water on top would freeze, sink to the bottom. Pretty soon your whole lake would be solid water. Solid water. And not only that, when summer would come, the, the, waters, the, the heat wouldn't penetrate down to the bottom to melt those away. So really, our earth would become solid ice if water would freeze and shrink like that. But water has unique qualities. It is a living substance. I think that's why Jesus called himself the living waters. Because we see that without water on earth, we would indeed die. And so that freezing aspect, why did God make water do that? So that you could live on this earth. And by the way, there is over a hundred different things that if they weren't just right, we would be dead on this planet. We couldn't live. But water has that capability simply because God wanted you to be able to live on this earth. If it didn't, we'd be dead. A third aspect, heat absorption. Water has some amazing qualities of of heat absorption. Not only would we not be able to live on this planet if we didn't have uh, water that would expand as it froze, but we wouldn't be able to live without water because we'd be crispy little critters. I'm going to need a volunteer here. Okay, you know what? Let's have you come up here. I'm going to, uh, I have a chair there. Why don't you bring that chair over? I'm going to bring this tarp over here as well. And you can just set it right up here on top. Now, you may be wondering why I've got you under a tarp, but that's all right. Go ahead and have a seat there. I'm going to grab a couple of things over here. One being... A water balloon. Okay, now, I'm going to hold this over your head. I hope that doesn't bother you too much. Um, I don't want that getting wet, so 
I also have some matches here. You know matches and water balloons. They go well together, don't they? So if I hold this over his head, he might, you know, get a little bit nervous. But probably not too much because I think he probably trusts that I'm not going to drop this on his head. However, if I light a match and then hold this over his head and then hold this underneath the water balloon, he might start getting a little bit more nervous, especially if he looks to see what's going on here. (laughs) So, aren't you glad you volunteered? Yeah, well, you know what? Let me try one more. This one's getting a little low. I'm going to throw that in there, and I'll try one more. We're not getting quite the results we were looking for, are we? Here we go. We'll try it one more time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Nothing. You see, guys, I could keep him here all day. I could boil the water in this water balloon, and it would not pop. Why? Because water has these heat-absorbing qualities. It, water takes all that heat that's coming from this uh, match, and it's taking it into the, the water itself, absorbing it, taking it away from the balloon. And so, thank you. I'll let you uh, sit down here for now. Um, those qualities are life-giving qualities that water gives us. If earth didn't have 70% water on it, we'd be crispy critters because all that water is absorbing the heat from the sun. And this is why the temperatures are livable on planet earth. Because we have water. Heat absorption. Now, there's another unique quality here with water and that is uh, it expands. We talked about that when it freezes. Well, also when it heats up. We know that molecules of air are, are very unique in that temperatures can, they're very spacious. So temperatures can cause them to shrink a great deal or expand a great deal. When they are expanding, it's many thousand times that it can get larger. And so what I'd like to do here is I'm going to show you how things can expand. I have brought with me here today some liquid nitrogen. And a balloon. Now, the liquid nitrogen, I'm going to bring it over and pour some of that in here. Always wear safety glasses. So, I'll take this liquid nitrogen, which is very cold. It's, you know, 300 and some degrees below zero. And pour some into this container. Now, a balloon is filled with air. Air, if you might picture it as a marble, perhaps, being a certain size molecule. If I shrink that molecule, it might look like a BB or even much smaller. So I'm going to take this balloon, stick it here in this liquid nitrogen. I'm going to grab a little cup here to help me with that. And you will see that the molecules of air are getting much smaller in this balloon. Just about have it here. Now that hasn't taken a 
a whole long time. But here is our balloon. And now you can see as it warms up, those molecules of air are going to get larger and larger and larger until it expands back to its original size in the balloon. You might even be able to hear it kind of crackling and crumbling here a little bit, but it's still going to be a balloon when that warms up. Coming back. You see, you can shrink it. You can get them larger as it warms. It's even going to get a little larger yet because it was a little larger than this when we started. All kinds of great things because our air around us, this is what causes our wind patterns. Is war, you know, rising warm temperatures, high and low air pressure systems, things like that. All these laws that God has made govern our universe. And as I've said before, that there is no way that these laws could come about by chance. I have here a graham cracker. Now, I will show you that liquid nitrogen, uh, it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to kill you. You don't want to get it in your clothing so it soaks in. But I can actually stick my hand in there. It's not going to hurt you if as long as I do it quickly. If I kept my hand in there, it would burn. It would freeze. Well, I have here a graham cracker. I'm going to stick this graham cracker into the liquid nitrogen. And we're going to see that that obviously is going to get very, very cold. Now, as that does, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it out and I'm going to place it in my mouth. Now, my mouth is obviously warmer than the graham cracker. So, if I take it here, pop it in my mouth, look what happens. We get that, what looks like steam, gases coming out, don't we? Another thing we can do with water that's very unique and and interesting. I have here a bucket of water. I am going to pull this tarp down just a little bit. We'll move this back out of the way. And pull this down slightly. We have water in here that's a little bit warmer than room temperature. And we're going to take some very cold liquid nitrogen to see what happens when you take something very cold and you unite it with something that is very warm or just normally warm. So we're going to change the sizes of the the molecules, change the size of the molecules of air in here. So watch as we do. Bubbles. Lots and lots of bubbles. They're just soap bubbles, that's all they are. But we can see the rapid expansion of these bubbles causes a bubble explosion. Just some soapy water in there. So that's another thing. There is a fifth aspect to water, and that is they are living waters. It brings life. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ, that's what we said when, when Miriam, the water stopped, they, they start again three days or seven days later, it seems. 
Because Jesus brings life. And that is a characteristic of water that I want you guys to remember. Every time you see a lake, every time you see an ocean, you need to remember that this is here because God has created it for us to live in. And without those, we would die. Those are living waters. And likewise, without Jesus Christ in our life, we would die. Those are the living waters. Well, we're going to take a break here. I'll get some things cleaned up. And we'll come back and talk about some more uh, commonly asked questions here. Well, we are back and we are going to be looking at uh, some more questions here. The first one being, doesn't speciation show evolution? Because we see many of the evolutionists saying that there are all these kinds of missing links and things like that going on, but it's not the case. Actually, everything that we predict that would take place because of creation and Noah's flood is exactly what we're seeing in the fossil record. Something as simple as leaves being fossilized. As a matter of fact, do you know that almost every leaf we find throughout the world that has been fossilized, what we see is that they were underwater because the cells are plump with water. You know, normally it just takes a a few minutes to hours for a leaf to wither and uh, get all dry and cracked up, but instead we see in the fossil record the leaves are full of water in their cells. We have identified over 1.3 million species and only named about 250,000 of those in the fossils. If the earth is old, this is what you would predict. The species would appear in only a few layers of the rock that would, they say, cover about 30 million years each. And then they would just disappear, these species would. So species have been replaced 20 times in 600 million years is what they say with the, the uh, 250,000 species that we have found in the fossils. 600 million species divided by the 30 million years each would equal about 20 species, different groups of species. Therefore, one would expect that the number of species alive at any time should be far less than the 1.3 million that are alive today. That's probably about 650,000 alive at any given time. That is a lot of species that should be around. Therefore, 13 million should have existed throughout time if evolution is true. 650,000 times 20 different times. This means that only about 10% of the species have a living representative today if evolution were true. 90% of them should be extinct. 90% of the species that existed should be extinct. That means we should find a pretty good number of them in the fossil record, shouldn't we? If evolution were true. There should be vast numbers that have evolved into a variety of species that we have today. We should see some kind of representation of them in the fossil record. Darwin knew this. Darwin admitted that the fossil record did not contain the myriad of transitions that would be expected if the earth was as old as it was. And we don't see them. Now, on the other hand, if the Bible is true, there would be no new animal kinds that were created after the sixth day of creation about 6,000 years ago. We know that Noah's Ark should have taken a representation to of each kind. There was a, a man named Bjorn Curtin who showed that 99% 
of the mammal species that are in Europe today are all present in the fossil record. 99% we find in the fossil record. Dr. James Valentine showed that 76.8% of marine mollusk species in California are all in the fossil record. In other words, what this is showing is that the fossil record is a very accurate, good representation of what we have today. Now, granted, some have gone extinct. We would expect that. But if evolution is true, 90% of them are missing. When in fact, what we're seeing, if the Bible is true, even the speciation is suggesting the Bible is correct and the earth is just young. Even the recent explosion of human diversity. Do you know that it would only take the maximum likelihood to get the speciation we have today would be 5,115 years? suggesting that the speciation of human beings based on genetic studies are showing the earth to be young. Speciation is showing the evolution cannot be true. Can we genetically engineer a dinosaur? Well, the answer is really no. Do you know we need a source of DNA from a dinosaur in order to be able to genetically engineer one? 1992, they tried to get DNA from some amber that was found, you know, like they saw in the movie Jurassic Park, and they obtained a small sequence of DNA, but it was just such a tiny amount compared to the 40 million. But the next few years, they had attempts to replicate this experiment, and they all failed. And it was believed that the small DNA sequence that they had was actually just contamination, not dinosaur DNA. Therefore, the idea was pretty much abandoned. Even at the time of the movie Jurassic Park, it was pretty much abandoned, although the world was kind of trying to use it as a means of making money. And we kept thinking, oh, maybe someday we'll clone a dinosaur. Well, that has pretty much all been uh, thrown out the window, knowing that DNA... Uh, de deteriorates much too quickly. There was a similar idea where they tried to clone a woolly mammoth, a 40,000-year-old woolly mammoth, they said, of course. We know it's not that old. Uh, even a 45,000-year-old Neanderthal man. Again, not that old, but uh, that's what they said. If we can't do it with a dinosaur, you're not going to be able to do it with either of these either. Years ago, there was a program on Discovery Channel where they were trying to show you that they were going to, you know, clone a woolly mammoth by putting this DNA into a, an existing elephant. Well, again, the same thing. They found so few base pairs that it was going to be impossible, and they knew it was going to be impossible, but they still aired it anyway. Well, Jack Horner, a few years back, found a T-Rex bone in Montana Badlands. It was back in 2003. It was so large that they had to break this thing in pieces. And when they did, they found soft tissue and blood cells still in the bones. Now, blood cells aren't supposed to last over 10,000 years. So why were they still in these cells if it died 65 million years ago? That doesn't make any sense. Montana State University, they looked at other bones that they had in files, basically. And they discovered that there were other soft tissues and blood cells even in those bones that they had in storage. But they weren't able to get enough DNA out of there to make, you know, any cloning possible. Let alone, as I said, the fact that it suggests that these things couldn't have died 65 million years ago because otherwise 
all the DNA would be gone. There would be no soft tissue. And so this has been a problem for evolutionists. But we talk more about that on dinosaurs, ice age, and a pre-flood world. But for now, what I want you to see as far as the cloning, even though that we're finding blood cells, there's still enough, not enough DNA to actually clone these things. The newest thing that has replaced this is they want to turn a bird back into a dinosaur. If a dinosaur turned into a bird, why not turn the bird back into a dinosaur, right? There was a Discovery Channel program called Dinosaurs Return to Life. And they said on the face of it, they don't look similar, birds and dinosaurs. No kidding. Boy, this is really good rocket science, isn't it? But to Jack Horner, he said the differences fade away in closer examination. In the 1990s, they found dinosaurs in China that had retractable claws and teeth and feathers, they say, just like birds. Really? Is this really evidence that it's a bird, that it, you know, has retractable claws, teeth, and feathers? Not at all. Now, frankly, I think the evidence that there were feathers is, is also a vast interpretation, not necessarily science. And in some cases, we find what are called birds that they're trying to say are part reptiles, like Archaeopteryx. They found Archaeoraptor. Archaeoraptor turned out to be a fake fossil. A guy in China took a bird fossil, a reptile fossil, cut them in half, put the two halves together, and it fooled all of our scientists. Archaeopteryx, on the other hand, again, it had what looked like teeth in its beak. And so it had feathers, no question about it. But really what they found is a bird that had teeth in its beak. Not a reptile with feathers. They found a bird with teeth in its beak. That's it. Now, we have found plenty of other birds in the fossil record with teeth in their beaks. I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, is it's because of these kind of evidences that they're trying to say dinosaurs have evolved into birds. Jack Horner's Museum in Montana has this feathered dinosaur on top of another dinosaur. Without a single fossil showing us this, this is what they have in the museums. The idea is, is if a dinosaur turned into a bird, now let's just simply turn that bird back into a dinosaur. Since we can't clone it, let's genetically alter it. Horner says that there are similarities between birds and dinosaurs. First of all, oblong eggs. So what? (laughs) It's an egg. A lot of eggs are oblong. Hollow bones that some sauropods had, he says, which, by the way, again, the evidence is interpreted. I'm not convinced that they had hollow bones. They find some parts that don't fossilize well, and they think that this is hollow bones. And then feathers. Again, that's an interpretation. Did they really find feathers on dinosaurs, or did they find a bird? Because even many of the evolutionists are saying things like Archaeopteryx is nothing but a perching bird. But these are the kind of evidences or really interpretations that they're using to try and claim that dinosaurs turned into birds. Therefore, dinosaur traits should still be in birds, they reason. All we have to do is just turn off or slightly modify the the DNA. Slightly? Guys, I'd say it's more than just slightly. But that's what they're telling us. How about common design? Could maybe that be a better explanation why we see similarities, say oblong eggs, that it's common design, not because they're related? The evidence isn't a dinosaur with feathers, it's a bird with feathers. Scientists expected there should be about 100,000 genes, but the Genome Project showed only about 20,000 genes, which, by the way, is actually more similar to reptiles than birds with this dinosaur 
DNA. How do you know how many genes a dinosaur had originally anyway, right? They don't. But nonetheless, this is what we're finding in the DNA, and it seems to be actually more similar to, to a reptile than a bird. What you need to understand is how they're trying to reproduce this dinosaur is that we have what are called Hox genes. We have eight controller genes, these Hox genes, and each one shows how to form a different part of the animal's body. But there's about a thousand of them. So small changes can have big effects. One of these Hox genes might just determine, you can see here on this fruit fly, the, the, the green part there, that Hox gene is going to develop that part of its body. Or the yellow part would form that part of its body. The red part would form that part of its body and so on. Those are the Hox genes. A caterpillar has these genes and it tells it where to form its legs. And those same genes make the spots on the wings as well. These evolutionists are saying that these are old genes that are simply picking up new tricks. It doesn't get a new gene, but it uses old genes in new ways by turning them on and off. In other words, the genes that tell it to form legs also tell it where to make spots on its body. So if that same gene can do two different things, you just have to have this gene have a new trick. Rather than develop scales, it's going to develop feathers. That's kind of the idea in a nutshell. Well, Hans Larsen says that Bertosaurus has about 34 vertebrae, as you can see here. That's very similar to a T-Rex. They say it's a relative to T-Rex. Archaeopteryx had 15 vertebrae. A chicken has 5 to 8 vertebrae. In other words, what they think we need to do to turn a chicken back into a dinosaur is just add vertebrae. The same information, let's just get more of it. That's just one of the steps that would need to take place. So what they did is they took chicken embryos and they wanted to see if they could, you know, basically uh, unnaturally, by in doing it in the lab, get a chicken to turn back towards a dinosaur in these small genetic steps. So what they did is they stained these embryos at different stages of development. At one and a half days, there were up to 16 vertebrae, they say, in the early stages. And then those vertebrae just get shorter and shorter as they develop, and then they hatch with about five vertebrae. Well, first of all, is that even really true? It's the same thing when a baby is developing in the womb. Just because it looks like a vertebrae doesn't mean it is a vertebrae. They say that the womb, you know, the baby has a tail. No, that's not a tail at all. They say they have gill slits. No, they're not gill slits at all. Those things develop into other portions of the body. And so it doesn't really mean that a chicken at a day and a half old really has 16 vertebrae. That's what they're interpreting it as. What they do is they plant a bead at the end of a developing tail that contains the same protein that's manufactured by the gene if it would remain active and not get turned off. So by doing so, what they got was, they say, three more vertebrae on the embryo. Again, this is an interpretation because, first of all, this embryo never comes to hatch out to be a fully developed chicken. But under a microscope, on, in this early embryonic stages, they say there's three extra vertebrae there. It may or may not be. Now, let's say it is for a moment. Does that really mean that we could evolve simply by adding the same information? By planting a bead to stimulate this gene 
to produce more of the same thing? No. If I would stimulate my body so that I would get the gene that produces hair to produce hair all over my body, it doesn't make me a monkey, does it? It just gives me more of the same thing that I already have. That really is not evolution at all. They say in a chicken, the gene just turns off too early, but if you could keep it active, you'd get all these extra vertebrae and be closer to your dinosaur. Well, Guys, that is a a crazy interpretation of what's really going on here. So they say, if we can do that to the tail, why not maybe just get teeth to come about? They showed a dolphin with what they say are vestigial legs, evolutionary leftovers that their ancestors had, but the gene has now been turned off so they don't have these legs anymore. Once in a blue moon, they say that it would turn back on and you could get this leg to come back. This is really not a leg. It is a fin. It is a mutation. It is the same information put in the, in the wrong spot and it's not beneficial for that dolphin. It's bad. The same information in the wrong place is not evolution. And fins are not legs. But this is the kind of stuff that they interpret looking for evolution. What they do is they insert a virus into the beak gene area of the chicken embryo and then two weeks later... They had these paired structures that looked like teeth in the embryo, they said. Notice that looked like teeth. Here it is under a microscope. Now, they may look like teeth, but they could be bumps. They don't develop into teeth. Again, we never saw them to be teeth. They certainly didn't hatch out and have teeth. These are interpretations. Well, can we see design in food? Absolutely we can. God, I believe, has left us a clue as to what kind of foods are good for what parts of our body. If we look at something as simple as a carrot, you slice it, it looks like a human eye, the pupil, the iris, extending veins out from the center of it. Well, science has revealed that carrots are indeed good for the eyes. Helps blood flow in the eyes. A tomato, it has a four-chambered area here. If you cut it in half, you can see them here. Just like your heart does, and science shows a tomato is good for the heart. Grapes hang in clusters that look like the shape of a heart, and they too look like blood cells, and science shows that grapes are good for the heart. A walnut, you break it open, it looks like a brain. Even the wrinkles or the folds of the nut are just like the neocortex. Science shows they help develop more than three dozen neuron transmitters in brain function. The kidney bean, shaped like a kidney, good for the kidneys. We have celery, rhubarb, and many others of these type of vegetables that show that they help strengthen the bones. Bones and these are both about 23% sodium. And eating them will help replenish depleted sodium from your bones. Sweet potatoes resemble the pancreas and they balance the glycemic levels for diabetics. Onions look like cells and yet science shows that they clear waste materials from the body cells they cause tears which wash away some of the epithelial layers of the eyes we have avocados eggplants and pears that help female womb and cervix health they even look like those organs research has shown that one avocado a week balances hormones sheds unwanted birth weight and prevents cervical cancer 
It even takes exactly nine months to grow an avocado, from blossom to ripen fruit, just like a baby. You know, out of 14,000 nutritional photolytic chemical constituents, only 141 of these have been studied and named, so who knows what kind of benefits we might find. Even figs are full of seeds and hang in twos when they grow. They increase male sperm numbers and the mobility to decrease sterility. Olives assist in the health and function of the ovaries. Oranges, grapefruits, and other citrus fruits are shaped like female mammary glands, and they even help with breast health and aid in the movement of lymph in and out of the breasts. Well, which one came first, DNA or RNA? You see, guys, DNA is an amazing storage facility. The DNA in our human body is enough to basically take 1,600 kilometers of CD-ROM stacked on top of each other. Just, that's just what we have in two millimeters of DNA equals the same thing as 1,600 kilometers. Sir Karl Popper, on the origin of the genetic code, said this, The machinery by which the cell translates the code consists of at least 50 macromolecular components which are themselves coded in the DNA. Thus the code cannot be translated except by using certain products of its translation. This constitutes a baffling circle, a really vicious circle. It seems for any attempt to form a model or theory of the genesis of the genetic code. Thus, we may be faced with the possibility that the origin of life, like the origin of physics, becomes an impenetrable barrier to science and a residue to all attempts to reduce biology to chemistry and physics. What he's saying is this. To imagine that this could come about by chance is absolutely ridiculous. It's beyond our understanding because the information just couldn't evolve. Here's the problem. RNA is a very unstable thing. What is RNA? It reads the DNA. DNA stores the information. It's like the book. RNA is like a person reading the book. Now, RNA will deteriorate and disintegrate in about 30 minutes to a few hours. It is very unstable. DNA, on the other hand, is extremely stable, and that's why the information is stored in that DNA. DNA duplicates itself for errors and checks for those errors in about 20 to 80 minutes. Imagine copying about 1,000 volumes of 1,000 pages each without an error in 20 to 80 minutes. The very smallest protein is about 70 to 100 amino acids, which are all left-handed. Now, ribose sugars and DNA and RNA, however, are all right-handed. Now, the reason that's important is because, as I've mentioned in other presentations, the Miller-Urey experiment, when they want to say they created life in a lab by creating DNA, bottom line is, or I should say amino acids, they created the wrong kind. We need DNA to have right-handed only amino acids. So we have to ask the question, where did all the information stored in the DNA come from? For DNA to replicate, it uses a protein. If only left-handed amino acids are in proteins here, you need RNA to get the protein, so how could DNA come first if it needs those proteins? You need the RNA to read the DNA, but you need DNA before you can have RNA. 
There's no explanation of which one could come first. It's a catch-22. You have to have both there right away, but you need one to build the other. The only way this could come about is if God said, let it be, and it was. If RNA came first, how could it do so without the instructions in the DNA to form itself? RNA has a half-life of about 44 years. At temperatures above 100 degrees Celsius, it drops to 70 minutes. So it couldn't have evolved in these hot thermal vents that all the evolutionists try to say, well, where did life come from? Well, in the oceans, in these hot thermal vents. Well, so heat is going to even cause it to be a worse problem for them. Water also causes it to be a problem because it deteriorates in water faster. We also know that it needs to select only the proper right-handed acids, as I told you, and in the right order without error. That would be the equivalent, basically, of you taking and filling a hat with 26 English letters and 22 Hebrew letters, 24 Greek letters. Now, as you draw letters out of the hat, you need to spell, where did I come from? Now, every time, and by the way, in only English, Every time you pick out a Hebrew letter, you have to start over. Every time you pick out a Greek letter, you have to start over. Every time you pick out the wrong letter in the wrong order, you have to start over. There is no way this could happen. You need the right letters in the right order, all capitals representing the right-handed amino acids. Every time you draw one that's not, you have to start over. Guys, this takes faith to believe that we came about by chance. More faith than the Bible. What is faith? The definition of faith is simply this. Belief or trust in somebody or something, especially without logical proof. Evolutionists want to say it's all about science and not faith. No, there is no logical proof. No logical explanation. As a matter of fact, all logic goes against evolution. It is faith. If you would lay... RNA and DNA out in the sun, what would happen to it? It would decay. Why? Because there's no mechanism in RNA and DNA to use the sunlight to capture it and turn it into a usable form of energy. So what the evolutionists are trying to tell you is that if you take matter, like DNA and RNA, add energy, like the sun, plus some time, what you're going to equal is life. Not at all. The truth is, is this. You have to have matter. You have to add energy. But you have to add some kind of information, intelligent design in there to equal life. In and of itself, it is impossible. Without God, life could not exist. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of why this is. The first law of thermodynamics basically says this. Matter can neither be created or destroyed. So, here's the question. Where did that first atomical particle come from that they say blew up in the Big Bang? If matter can't be created, it can't come from nothing, where did the atomic particle, which is something, come from? They can't explain it. No explanation. You either have to believe in eternal God or eternal matter. Evolutionist Dr. Robert Gange said this, the first law teaches that the natural processes cannot bring into existence something from nothing. The universe had a beginning, which seems to be scientifically accepted. Well, then one conclusion is that something unnatural created the universe. Taking at face value, this conclusion is consistent 
with the total sum of evidence before us. In other words, he's saying something unnatural took place, something outside of the laws we see, or something supernatural. The second law, on the other hand, says that usable energy becomes less usable. Entropy. Things are wearing out. Usable energy becomes less usable. Uh, give you an example of the second law. There's a cup of water. There's heat in that cup of water. That is energy. If you leave that cup of water in a room, what happens to the water? It naturally starts to go away. The energy, you don't lose the energy. It just becomes less usable. It's not in that water, so you don't have hot water anymore. Isaac Asimov said this, The universe is constantly getting more disorderly. Viewed that way, we can see the second law all about us. We have to work hard to straighten a room. But left to itself, it becomes a mess again very quickly and very easily. In fact, all we have to do is nothing and everything deteriorates, collapses, breaks down, wears out all by itself. If everything is wearing out, that means the universe has to be wearing out. But if the universe had a beginning... It simply means that when you go back in time, the universe had more energy, didn't it? It would have to have an infinite amount of energy if the universe is eternal. It had to have a beginning in the beginning. If it was billions of years ago, had to have an amazing amount of energy, no question, because it's decayed down to the point we have today. Well, what an evolutionist says about this is, well, the second law of things decaying it only applies to closed systems but we are in an open system what's an open system a closed system let me explain an open system is where matter or energy can be added or taken away like earth because the sun is adding energy to earth isn't it open system a closed system on the other hand energy is added or taken but not matter, kind of like a thermos. If you have a thermos, you can see that there's no matter that's going to be removed or added to that thermos as long as it remains closed, but eventually the heat in that thermos will go away, won't it? It's a closed system. You can't add matter to it. An isolated system is a third one, which no matter or energy can be added or taken away. And that is theoretically the universe, that you can't add energy to the universe, you can't take it away, you can't add matter, and you can't take it away. So evolutionists would say then, well, the second law can only apply to an isolated system. But, as we know, the earth is an open system. They'll say, well, we see things going against the second law, seeds. You plant a seed, it grows into a tree. A baby in the womb, it grows. No, that does not show against entropy at all. And here's why. For life to form and increase in complexity, you need to have a few things. Number one, an open system. Energy has to be able to be added to it. Like the sun, for example. Third thing is you need to have a mechanism to capture and change that energy into a usable form. You see, a plant, a seed, has something already in it called information. You have that seed, the energy from the sun comes in, there's already an energy plant inside the seed that can take the energy, capture it, turn it into a usable form for metabolic work. 
causing the plant to grow. It's like typing on a keyboard. You take a torn up computer with no mechanism, no information in it, no hard drive, no RAM. You can type all you want, add energy into the computer. Is anything going to happen? No, because there's no mechanism to capture it. Take that energy, turn it into something usable. Likewise, where did these cells get the ability to capture, store, and transform energy? They can't explain it. Now, if you put together the computer, wipe out the hard drive so the hard drive is there, now start typing on the keyboard, again, same thing. Without the information in there, even if the hardware is there, the information has to be there, it can't decode the information you're typing onto the keyboard. So a seed, first of all, is not going against entropy because there's information in there. They can't explain where the information came from. And second of all, they're still, even in that growth process, is there's entropy that continues to take place. It's growing. Cells are dying in order for that to happen. Same thing with a baby. The evolution proposal is this. You, the sun provides energy for work. However, there's nothing there to capture the energy, so we need to evolve something. Well, there's no energy to do this because there's no way to capture and use the sun's energy. So we have to go back to step two. Nothing to capture the energy. We need to evolve something. But to evolve something, you need something to capture the energy. So you need to evolve something. Can you see that this doesn't work? You're in a, a, a vicious cycle. Well, you ask an evolutionist this question, where did matter come from? Where did this atomic particle come from? They can't answer it. Can something create itself? No. The first law says that something cannot come from nothing. Well, can nothing create something? No. Again, the first law breaks that. So if something cannot create itself, and nothing cannot create something, then something outside of this universe had to create it. Matter cannot self-exist. The second law would tell us that because if matter was eternal, by now we'd be in a heat death. The usable energy would be gone. So what could be outside of the universe and its laws? Only one thing, God. Because God created these laws, He is outside of those laws. He could make this happen. There is no logical, natural process. In seeds and babies, both, there is already a mechanism to capture and convert and use the energy in the DNA. Where did this DNA come from? Adding energy to an open system does not overcome the second law. Why? Because you first need information. And where did information come from? Guys, it's kind of like a book. A book has words in it, right? If I lift up this uh, book in front of you and say, read this, you may be able to read it. But what if the book is in Spanish and you only read English? It means nothing, right? Because there is a language as well inside this information. So even if, by evolutionary chance processes, you know the example of drawing letters out of a hat, even if we could get that to happen, so that the words in the beginning came on a page, 
it means nothing to you unless you have a language to interpret the words that have formed. So an evolution is for us to say that, you know, things could happen just by chance processes coming together. Let's give them that for a moment. Let's say by some chance a print factory blew up in the beginning, appeared on the page. You're still at a dead end because you don't have a language to read it. That's the complexity of DNA and RNA. You see, you can have DNA, the information, but RNA has to be able to read it. You need a language that's there. Now, by the way, an evolutionist, too, will say that ice crystals and things like that, there's these, that order that comes about by chance. No, first of all, those are patterns, not real order. Ice crystals actually show an increase in entropy. They have a lower level of heat. So it's an increase in entropy, not a, a decrease in it. That doesn't produce order. As ice forms, energy is lost, which is the opposite of what evolutionists say you need to turn something into life. So let me just kind of sum it up in this, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap this part up. Since DNA, which is the code for life, is information, like the letters on a book, the conclusion is somebody intelligent must have put it there. Because information can't evolve. Order, perhaps. But information, not a chance. Since DNA information is billions of times greater than the present technology we have today, whoever put that information in there must be very intelligent. You might even say, well, omniscient. Do you know that the DNA, all the DNA in one human body would fit in about two tablespoons? You take that two tablespoons of DNA and you could un, you know, connect them together, unravel it, it would actually reach to the moon and back about four million times. That is complex. Enough DNA. You take all the DNA in our body. There is more information in those two tablespoons of DNA than there is in all the computer software programs in the world combined. That's how much information is in your bodies. Even the slower ones of you here. (laughs) Where did that information come from? And if it's more complex than what we can understand, then somebody smarter than us had to have put it in there. You don't read an amazing piece of literature and think it came about by chance. Somebody had to write it. Somebody omniscient. And since the sender stored the information in the DNA molecules, even provided machines to encode, decode, and read this information, this sender had a purpose. That DNA tells you what color your hair is going to be, how tall you're going to be, all these different things. This DNA is purposeful and powerful. Therefore, whoever put it in there must be purposeful and powerful. You might even say omnipotent. And since information is not natural, like I said, the book may be natural, but the ability to interpret, read it, the language inside of it is not of material nature. Whoever put it in there also must not be of material nature. Like your brain, I can squeeze it and touch it, but your thoughts, I can't grab it. Your brain's like the words on the page, the thoughts, like the language that interprets it. So we see that whoever this sender is, 
seems to be non-material, spiritual, you might say, omniscient, omnipotent. Therefore, this sender, I believe, is God. Do you know that's what Romans 1 tells us? It says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, you might say His omniscience, His all-knowing power, His eternal power, omnipotence, His divine nature, you might say His spiritual nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made so that men are without excuse. You see, guys, I think DNA and RNA, regardless, we know that they both had to come at the same time, but it also shows us that God had to put it there. He is the omniscient, omnipotent, spiritual being that put it there. There has to be a sender. That sender is smarter than us because the information in DNA is smarter than us. He has to be non-material because information is non-material. He has to be purposeful because that information is purposeful and powerful. I think it's God. Now there are some theological questions that we can look at here as well. One of them, how did Israel get water in the desert? Do you know in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In the first month, there Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. The question we have to ask is, where was Israel getting water before this? We see that when they went out into the wilderness, God said, Moses, speak to this rock, strike this rock, and water will come from it. It did. But this, when Miriam dies, is 40 years later. So the question is, where did they get this water? For the 40 years prior to this. You know, the Jewish Talmud and Jewish history is filled with amazing information. Now, by no means does the Talmud have all truth in it. It doesn't. It's not Scripture, that's for sure. Much of it has been written by people who have denied Jesus Christ. But do you know it's a compilation of records that even go long before Christ? And there is some good information, some good history in there. One of the things that I find fascinating is they talk about Miriam's rock, and they see this almost as a typifying a resurrection type thing. And it does fit the resurrection of Jesus very well. But they ask this question too, and do you know what they tell you? They tell you that that rock that Moses struck 40 years earlier followed him through the desert. Now I know some of you might think, what? They are crazy. Not really, they're not crazy. Look at this, in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, is where we see that 40 years earlier, they had that same problem, and Moses strikes the rock. Here's what the Jewish sages say. Thereafter, this water-giving rock miraculously accompanied the children of Israel throughout their wanderings in the desert. But look what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, for those of you who think they're crazy. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It says that rock accompanied them. It's right there in the New Testament, and the Jewish sages were said it followed them through the desert. I'd say they were right, because the Bible says they were. That rock was Christ, and the water 
was what? The living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. In John 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Now in the Midrash, it says this. This miraculous water-giving rock was always present in the wilderness with the children of Israel. When the people camped, it rested in a high place opposite the entrance of the tent of meeting. Wherever the Jews encamped, grass, trees, vines, figs, and pomegranates sprang up at its edge. The vines produced seven differently flavored grapes. The children of Israel tasted in the water, and plants produced by the well of Miriam the goodness of the world to come. Now, what is the Midrash? The Midrash is basically a commentary by the Jewish people. But this is what they say about this water. Isn't that fascinating? They saw a cause and effect relationship between the death of Miriam and the water stopping. They referred to the rock as the well of Miriam, in fact. Normally, here we see, scripturally, the first seven days of 30 days of mourning are set aside for grieving. That's by Jewish tradition. Well, after these first seven days are over, Israel may have become very desperate for water. You know, Miriam dies, seven days goes by, no water, and they start to complain. Well, we know that there are three basic offices in in theology. There's the priest, there's the king, and there is a prophet. Aaron, at this time, was the priest. Moses was the king, and we see that Miriam was the prophetess. Jesus acted as a prophet, didn't he? The word of God, the word that became flesh. Well, when he walked this earth, he was a king, he was a priest, and he was also a prophet. A priest in his death, a king in his resurrection, as well as in his exaltation and his return. He is a type of Aaron, he is a type of Moses, and he is also going to be a type of Miriam. The water is going to be cut off. You see, the water stopped when this prophet, Miriam, died. Moses and Aaron, the priestly and kingly ministers, were to go and speak to the rock. In other words, symbolically resurrect the waters to come out of it again. In Numbers 20, verse 11, Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out in the community, and their livestock drank. Now, tradition has it that Miriam died on the 10th day of Nisan, four days before Passover. That is the same day the Passover lamb is normally selected by the Jewish priests. If you uh, see my Biblical Festivals DVD, we talk more about that. Well, the waters cease to flow when Miriam dies. Likewise, the waters, the living waters, were cut off when Jesus died. So if Moses and Aaron mourn for the seven days before striking the rock, an amazing correlation emerges. That would mean that they would strike this rock on the 17th day of Nisan. If she died on the 10th, mourn for seven days, the 17th, the water comes back. Jesus is crucified on the 14th day of the month. Three days later on the 17th, rises from the dead, and the waters now start flowing again. When Jesus would resurrect. Okay, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but nonetheless, 
it is kind of interesting that maybe that's why the Bible records the water stopping when Miriam dies. A few months later, Aaron dies. Moses took Aaron to the mountain where he took off his priestly garments and put them on Eliezer instead. Well, the Aaronic priests were, quote, prevented by death from continuing. Hebrews 7.23 tells us that. Chapter 7, verse 18 of Hebrews, it says the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Well, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, since he wasn't a Levite, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. His resurrection, the living waters coming back, is the evidence of his priestly ministry. His evidence that he could be that because of an indestructible life. So again, I'm not going to be dogmatic, but an interesting parallel. Maybe that's why the waters stop when Miriam dies. So how about this? Why are people homosexuals? Homosexuality is in the world simply because people deny God as creator. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27, look what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice that they know the truth, but they have to suppress it. And it goes on to say this, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made so that men are without excuse. So notice it says you can see God by His creation. Look what it goes on to say then. They will reject God as Creator. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor did they give thanks to Him. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. So they reject God as creator. Now what happens, just continuing on, it says because they reject God as creator, look what takes place. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. It goes on, because of this. Because of what? Because they rejected God as Creator. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Guys, the Bible says they rejected God as creator, so he gave them over to their own natural desires, their own lusts. That's why people are homosexual. They're not born that way. They're not born that way at all. But they, say, they want to say that we're born that way because they think it excuses them, but in fact it doesn't. You know, we're born sinful. Just because you are born with sin, does that make it right and okay to do it? No. It means that you have to work against it. In Jude chapter 3, it says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you, and they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license 
for immorality. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these He has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal hell. Notice Sodom and Gomorrah in a similar way. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Homosexuality. In a similar way, some kind of unnatural sexual relationship is what had happened in the days of Noah. Guys, this has been going on a long time. And it goes on in verse 8, in the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, didn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. You know, I see many in the church starting to say, oh, homosexuality, it's okay, it's all love, it's all this. Guys, the Bible says it's perversion. They say, oh, it's not, that's just Old Testament. No, it's in the New Testament. Even Romans is telling us this, isn't it? Romans. It's not just an Old Testament thing. You know, many people say, I just feel like God isn't listening to my prayers. You know what? He may not be. You know, in Psalm 66, David says this, I cried out to him with my mouth, his praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If you cherish sin in your heart, the Lord may not listen to your prayers. I think that's what's going on a lot of times in the churches today. Is that people are cherishing sin in their hearts, they don't want to repent, they don't want to obey God's commands, and as a result they pray, but you know what, God's not listening. You go read the book of Amos. It says that the praises that these people were giving God were like a noise in His ear because they weren't obeying Him. Proverbs 28, verse 19, it says this, If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. If you're turning a deaf ear to the commandments of God, your prayers are detestable. Now, I'm not saying that if you break these commandments, because we all do. What I'm saying is if you turn a deaf ear to them, if you don't care about the commandments of God, your prayers are detestable to God. This is a serious issue that the church is facing today. John 15 tells us, Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Did you catch that? If you obey my commands, I will remain in you. You will remain in me. And he goes on to say, I've told you this because I want your joy to be complete. There is a reason. I'm not saying that you you have to be perfect to get to heaven. No, no. We can't. We can't be perfect. We can't even be good, really. It's Jesus, His goodness in us. But it's saying that He's given us these commands not for salvation, but for your joy, for your safety, for your protection. We read as well in Romans 6, 
Verse 12 through 13, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. We're all born sinful. So even if you think you've been born gay, you need to resist it. I don't believe you've been born gay. I believe that you have rejected God as Creator, and when you do so, you reject Him as lawgiver. You, when you reject His laws, He's going to give you over. If you are a homosexual and you want cured of this, the first thing you need to do is repent and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord, He is Creator, and this earth was created by Him just a few thousand years ago. Therefore, you can trust His Word and start obeying it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. He'll hear you. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he says, When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from this evil way in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. People get upset with me because I speak against homosexuality. Guys, I'm going to be held accountable if I continue to let these people live in sin. I'm not saying they can't be forgiven. I'm not saying I don't love them. But I hate homosexuality. I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. And I will be held accountable if I'm silent about it. It goes on, but if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways... He will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. We have a responsibility as a church to stop compromising on these issues. We have to call a spade a spade. Homosexuality is sin. And the Bible is clear on that. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 2, 3-6, We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, but does not do what his, He commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Or how about 1 John 5? This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 1 John 2.9 Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Guys, I don't hate the homosexual. I love God. And to love them means to be honest with them. If I see a train coming down the road and somebody's standing on the track, am I going to just say, you know, hey, have a nice day. I love you. Or am I going to say, I love you, so get off the track. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Matthew 5, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guys, I'm not just talking about homosexuality here. I'm even talking about men who look at women lustfully. It's sin. Sexual sins are sexual sins, and there are major severe consequences for them. So I don't just single out homosexuality, guys. As a matter of fact, you know, oftentimes when I meet a homosexual, I won't even bring up homosexuality because there's enough in the rest of the commandments to convict this person that he has sinned against a holy and righteous God and he needs Jesus. We do have to be careful in the church that we don't raise homosexuality above all these other sins, heterosexual sins. You know, our young kids going out and and having premarital sex, it's bad too, isn't it? So I'm not trying to single this out, but because the church seems to be singling it out today and saying it's okay, it needs to be addressed. Jude says... As we looked at earlier, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Well, in 2 Peter 2.6, it says he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. 2 Chronicles 7 says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I believe that part of the reason we are under judgment in America today is because we have not turned from our sins. We have welcomed the sin. 1 Kings 3 says, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? We need to have discernment and use it from the Word of God. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. God is not mocked. Psalm 2, 1 through 2 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God isn't mocked by this disobedience. He's up there in heaven. He's looking down and He will judge us someday. You know, Jesus was harsh at times. You might say, you're being too harsh on this, on these homosexuals, Brian. Brian, you've you got to calm down. This is a serious thing, guys. And just as, as Achan's sin affected the whole community, the sin of homosexuality is affecting the whole church today. I can be harsh. Jesus was harsh at times. You know, in 1 Kings 18.26, it says they took a bull which was given to them and they, they made a sacrifice. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. This is when Elijah was up on the mountain, Mount Carmel there. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped unto the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is, is he a god? 
Either he is talking, or maybe he's pursuing, or he's in a journey, or, or maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he needs to be awakened. Even Elijah mocked these people to show the foolishness. He reflected their foolishness back to them. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs that are full of dead men's bones, unclean. In Matthew 3, he says, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In Matthew 12, he calls them a generation of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Matthew 23 again, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Luke 3, O you generation of vipers. Luke 13, you know, Herod, he says, go you and tell that fox. In Acts chapter 7, he says, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. In Acts 13, Paul says, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, you child of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of God? All throughout the Bible, God calls people's fools, brutish, simple, perverse, scorners, wicked, vipers, snakes, fox. We can call sin, sin. You have to get it out of your minds that we have to be so polite to everybody and just love them into heaven. Guys, sometimes we need to be honest enough with people to give them the truth and let them know that they're on a path to hell. I'm not saying that this is our goal to offend people. I'm simply saying don't get upset with people when they call a spade a spade and they call homosexuality sin. I'm just trying to be like my heavenly father. Why did God make a covenant? Archaeology has supported that we have actually found evidence of the covenants that we see described in the Bible. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham take this animal, cut it in half, they'd lay the halves together, half on one side, half on the other, of a trench. The blood would go into the trench, and then they both, normally, the parties would walk through this bloody trench. Initially, it was basically saying that if I break my end of the deal, you can do what we did to these animals. And both parties would go through. Now, when God did it, both parties didn't go through. Only God did, not Abraham. In archaeology, there were these nine basic steps that were done for a covenant. Today, we might shake a hand or sign a contract, but back then, what they would do first is take off their coat. They would exchange coats. They would take off their belts. They would cut this covenant like I just described. Then they would raise their right arm and they would usually have a, a blood pact where they would mix blood together. Then they'd exchange names. They would make a scar by that cutting so that if you met somebody and you saw that they were all scarred up, it meant that they had made covenant with a lot of different people. They would give the terms of the covenant, eat a memorial meal together, and then plant a tree as a sign of this memorial meal. And so what I want to show you today, real quickly, is that when God made a covenant with us, that the same things that happened there are the same things that we see in archaeology when people would make covenants. But God's covenant was more significant. 
The first thing that you would do is you would take off your coat, as I said. It basically said this, I'm giving all of myself to you. A coat back then was very important. So he's saying, my coat, my, my livelihood ultimately is yours. And they would exchange coats. I'm giving all of myself to you. The belt back then, it wasn't to hold up their britches. The belt was where they would hold their sword, their weapons in. In essence, it was saying this, I'm giving you my belt. I'm giving you my weapons. And if anybody attacks you, they're attacking me. Cutting of the covenant, cutting these animals in half, as I said, was saying, if I break my end of the covenant, you can do this to me. Raising the right arm and mixing blood. They would cut their palms, bring them together, shake hands, and basically saying, we are one life. My blood is your blood. Your blood is my blood. The exchanging of names. They would take the last name of that person, identifying that, yeah, we are one. We're family. We're brothers. Making a scar was a public testimony to others that you have entered into a covenant with somebody else. So if they hurt you, they're going to have to deal with this person who you have made a covenant with as well. And giving the terms of the covenant, it was just basically saying, everything I have is yours. I give my life to you. As far as eating the memorial meal, usually it was bread and wine fed to each other. And then planting this memorial tree also was a testimony not just for the two of you, but for everybody to see. Again, this is what we see that took place making covenants in biblical times. Archaeology and history has shown us this. Well, let's see what God does in making this covenant. In Genesis 15, we see Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. You can see that they cut this covenant. And Abraham sees that these birds of prey come on. Now, spiritually speaking, throughout the Bible, we see birds of prey represent Satan. It seems like Satan was trying to get into this covenant somehow. And so what ended up happening is Abraham is put to sleep because God is saying you can have absolutely no part of this covenant. And we see a blazing torch going through the, the, the trench, not Abraham, because God is saying this is my covenant to you. You have no part of this covenant. This is my promise to you. That's what was going on. Now, this covenant, we see pictures of uh, what goes on in the Bible in other places to what we see in archaeology. Do you remember when Jonathan made a covenant with David? In 1 Samuel chapter 18, it says Jonathan made a covenant with David. And then it says he took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Why was he doing that? Because that's the ritual we see that takes place at the time of these covenants. Now, we don't see them doing any cutting and things like that. I think probably at times they just did parts of these. 
Well, in 2 Samuel 4, Jonathan is son of Saul. He had a son that was lame in both feet named Mephibosheth. Well, after Saul is dead, David wants to keep the covenant. He made a covenant with Jonathan, so he wants to make sure that he's going to live up to this covenant. And he says, is there anybody in Jonathan's household that's still alive? He finds out that Mephibosheth is. So David takes Mephibosheth in. Why? Because he made a covenant with Jonathan. He's taking care of it. We read about this in chapter 9. He says, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? These kinds of things are applicable for us today. The way way they did these covenants in the Old Testament. Let's see how Jesus has done that for us. The first thing, taking off of the coat. Jesus... Do you know what he did? He took off our coat, our sinful nature, and he put that upon himself on that cross, didn't he? God offers all of himself to us as well, as we take his nature and put it on us. Look what it says in 2 Peter 1-4. through Through these he has given us this very great and precious promise, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. You see, we now participate in the divine nature. God has given His nature to us when He took our sinful nature on His body on that cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Christ has given us His clothing. He has given us clothes of righteousness. He has taken our nature. We now have His. How about the belt? Remember the belt said he will fight for you. If anyone attacks you, they attack him. Ephesians 6 tells us this, that we are to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You see, God has given us His weapons. This is why in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God is our weapon. He is our our armor. He gave us His belt. Cutting the covenant. Again, there was a reason that Abraham didn't go through because this is only for Jesus. I think that's why Abraham was put to sleep, but like I said, is so that he could have nothing to do with this. Likewise, we have nothing to do with our salvation. It's a free gift. Christ on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice that could not or Christ on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice that could never be broken. In Hebrews seven it tells us because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Remember I said that they would raise their right arms and mix blood? 
Is that not what Christ did as He raised His arms on that cross, shedding His blood for us? Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, His blood, we mixed blood. His blood was shed for us. He became a curse for us. Exchanging names. Abram, after that, became known as Abraham, didn't he? And now God, who was always Elohim, becomes known as the God of Abraham. Later on, when that covenant is passed on to Isaac and Jacob, he becomes known as the God of Abraham and Isaac. Then the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he becomes known as what? The God of Israel. When that covenant keeps being passed on. They exchange names. James 2, 23 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. In Romans 9, it says it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His suffering in order that we may also share in His glory. Revelation 3, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will He leave it. I will write on Him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on Him my new name. My new name. We are now the family of God, co-heirs with Christ, and we now take upon the name of Christ as Christians. Making a scar. After this, in Genesis 17, God says that because of this covenant, as a sign of this covenant, you're going to be scarred. Get circumcised. In Ephesians chapter 1, Verse 13 and following, having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. 2 Corinthians 1.21, He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We have been scarred. We have been sealed so that the whole world can know we are Christians. As far as the terms of the covenant, in John 14, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. First John 4, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 5, this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God to obey His commands and His commands are not burdensome. For Everyone born of God overcomes the world. The terms of the covenant are this, because I died for you on the cross, now I want you to love me, obey me. Just like the Ten Commandments were a result of, the, of grace. God says, because I led you out of Egypt, now thou shalt. Thou shalt not. Jesus says, because I died on the cross for you, thou shalt. You're saved because of what I've done, 
But there is a responsibility that goes along with being saved. Eating the memorial meal, bread and wine, communion. John 6, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, remains in me and I in him. For the life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. If it is the blood that makes atonement. You see this memorial meal. Every time we take it. Jesus says do this in remembrance of me. Right? Finally planting a tree. They would plant a tree. And we see that in scripture. The oaks of Mamre. And all these different things in scripture. Likewise in Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of water of life. As clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing twelve crops. And it goes on to describe this all the more. This covenant that God has made with us, we see that all throughout as well. So why did God have Abraham cut this animal in half? I think there's a picture that he wants us to see there. It was obviously pointing to Christ, but I think there's some even deeper meanings within that. People always ask me, are we to baptize the dead? It's a good question. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, look what it says. If there is no resurrection, what will those do? Who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized for them? It's right there in the Bible, guys. Are we supposed to baptize the dead? I mean, Mormons do that. Are we? No, we're not. But because we've divorced the Old Testament from the New, we often don't understand what's going on here. To understand this, you need to understand the Old Testament, the Old Law. Paul is trying to prove the resurrection of the dead. Now, some argue, a lot of times your footnotes will say, Paul may be quoting, or or not quoting, but necessarily referring to a pagan tradition or a pagan custom of the day. So, those that are being baptized for the dead are the pagans. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think Paul would try to prove the truth of the resurrection and say, well, if the dead aren't raised, then why do the pagans do it? No, he wouldn't do that. The answer is way back in Numbers 19. And what we see here in Numbers 19 is that if you came in contact with a dead body, you became unclean. Now, if somebody died, like a mother or a father or a brother or a sister, it was an honor for you to go and prepare that body for the resurrection. This is what Mary and and them did for Jesus, right? They went to anoint his body because they believed that the body would be a physical resurrection, so you prepare the body for the resurrection. We see in Numbers that if you came in contact with a dead body, on the first and the third days, you would take this red heifer, sacrifice it, burn it, take the ashes, put the ashes in water. On the first and third days, you were to be sprinkled with this water. On the seventh day, you were to be completely immersed in this water. Literally, the Hebrew, a mikvah, a baptism. You were mikvah, baptized. Why? For the sake of the dead. You touched a dead body, you have to go through a baptism. Likewise, if you're going to have a funeral and prepare a dead body for the resurrection, you became unclean and you had to voluntarily do this. And now you would have to go and be baptized. Mikvah, as Numbers 19 tells us. So all that he is telling us 
in 1 Corinthians 15 is this. If the dead aren't raised physically, why are you guys touching this dead body, becoming unclean and having to go through this baptism if the dead aren't raised? When we connect the old and the new together, it all comes together and it just makes sense. Why did the bleeding woman touch Jesus' robe? You ever ask yourself that? Why why did she risk death? Because that's what she was doing. This woman, when she came and touched Jesus' robe, Jesus says, stop, who who touched me? Somebody touched me. And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. And he says, I felt power go out from me. And this woman eventually then fesses up. Why was this such a big deal? First of all, We need to look at what she was touching. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 through 40, it tells us here that the Israelites, throughout their generations, were to make these tassels on the corner of their garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And it says what they're for. So you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. These tassels are called the tzitzit. It's the corner of the garment. It was called the kanaf in Hebrew, which meant wing. God commanded to attach a single thread of blue to each of the four corners, the wings of the garment. Not just any blue, but a special blue. The Hebrew word was the same one that's used in the blue dye in the weavings of the tabernacle and on the high priest's robe. So we have to ask, did Jesus wear these seat seats? Of course he did, because he was fulfilling the law when he came. All Israelites wore them. And so when it says that she touched the corner of his garments, she was touching the seat seat, the blue thread, the thing that was there to remind them of the commandments of God. The Greek word that is used here is the kraspadon. It's used by the Septuagint in place of tzitzit in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. And so when it says in Mark 5, 28, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Luke 8, 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe. The Greek there is kraspadon of his cloak. So there is no question that Jesus was wearing this. But the question remains, why did she think that this would heal her by touching the the seat seat of the garment. Well, in the days of the apostles, many believed that the seat seat of a holy man possessed special powers. The Talmud even says that in times of drought, school children used to grab onto the hem of a miracle worker's garment and implore him to pray for rain. Well, when we go and look at this in Malachi, look what it says here in chapter 4, verse 2. In a prophecy about Jesus, Yeshua, It says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now the sun of righteousness is a title for the Messiah. The word for wings here is kanaf, the same as the tzitzits. Perhaps this woman thought Jesus was the Messiah, the sun of righteousness. Because Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Malachi is saying is when the son of righteousness comes, he's going to come with healing in his seat seat. 
And so it is very possible this woman thought, here is the son of righteousness, a great miracle worker. If I can only touch the seat seat, there will be healing in there. And there was. She wasn't the only one. In Mark 6, verse 56, it says, Wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were made clean. They were healed. Numbers 15, 38 says, You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself. In other words, remember that seat seats were to remind us of the commandments of God. I believe that she was grabbing on to what was to symbolize the commandments of God and she was healed. We read in Zechariah 8.22, Many people and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty, to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In those days ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of the seat seat of his robe, and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Are the Gentiles going to grab on to the commandments of God? See, I believe our churches today have become very lawless. We've rejected the commandments of God. And the Bible is telling us in the end times here, there are going to be Gentiles who are going to come and grab on to the seat seat of the Jew and say, take us with you. We've heard God's with you. I believe that the closer we get to end times, and I'm seeing it already happening, the more we're going to realize that there's a Jewishness to the Scriptures that we have ignored. If, you're, if this is unfamiliar to you, I really recommend you get that my, my DVD set on the biblical festivals, the Lord's festivals. You will be blown away to see Christ in those things. We are to grab on to the tzitzit, the commandments of God. And as we do, there will be healing in those wings. Again, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about healing for the church, healing for the believers. Because I think we're sick. Because we have disobeyed God so much. Ephesians tells us this in chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, the, the Jewish people, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Prior to Jesus, Gentiles had no business keeping the commandments given to Israel especially those given to Israel to set them apart from other nations like the Sabbath and those festivals. But by laying hold of Messiah, by believing on Him, by being grafted into His tree, those Gentiles are now laying hold of the covenant status within Israel. I think that's part of what it means. Let us go with you. We are grabbing on to that covenant status. I believe that for the most part, Gentiles who are in the faith have considered it almost to be, you know, some kind of merit on their part not to keep God's commandments because we're not under the law. We're not under the law. We almost feel like it's, you know, we're strong because we don't have to be under the law of God. Well, I agree we're not under the law. The condemnation is gone, but are we still supposed to do it? Yeah. 
Jesus kept the law. Why wouldn't we want to? If you love me, you'll do what I say. We see how the sick, the diseased, they took hold of the seat seat of Yeshua's garment and they were healed. Likewise, I think Jesus is offering us the same spiritual healing to all who will hold on, grab on to the commandments, the seat seat of the Messiah. I think that's why that woman grabbed onto it. And I want to encourage each and every one of you here that in your walk of Christianity to grab onto the seat seat, the commandments of God, and see how He blesses you. You're already saved. This isn't for salvation. But see how God blesses you because you will follow and obey Him. Read the Bible. Do what it says. I'll leave you with that. Have a great evening. God's blessings.